when Cody first came to me, I'm like, okay, dance class in church, you know? And I'm a little, I'm a little, okay, we're definitely Pentecostal now, right? Because we're supposed to be Pentecostal. And instantly, before my mind went the wrong way, God immediately reminded me of why we took our little daughter out of the dance classes here in Maryville, because all it was was provocative dance, um, making little girls dance like big girls. Um, shouldn't anyway. <laughs> and uh, and she, I said, so why don't you explain to me a little bit about it? And she explained it, and she goes, and she goes that's why I want to do it, is because that's all that's taught, and that's not godly, and it's not... It's not for women to do, but this is, and we shouldn't just throw it all, you know, she didn't say this, but I came up, you know, don't throw it all out just because you've had the world's example. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, let's, let's, I think that's okay. I think this is, obviously it's okay. I mean, David danced before the Lord, um, uh, Miriam danced before the Lord, all the young virgins danced before the Lord. It's, it's common, it's biblical, and uh, that's how it's going to be taught here. So I, I'm not going to do it. Um, well, I've got a glory hula hoop at home, but, uh, it doesn't move anymore. It just stays still. I'm getting larger. So, um, it's a a glory belt. Anyway. All right. All right. Moving on. All right. Somehow you got to segue into numbers chapter four and five. So if you want to turn there, your Bibles, numbers four and five today is, uh, second to last day for collecting the shoe boxes. Um, Please bring them by today. I know you can bring them by tomorrow, but that's a busy day for us. It'd be great if you were planning on bringing one, you haven't got it done yet, to get them in here today by four o'clock. That would really help us out so we're not rushing tomorrow morning to get them down. They want us open on Mondays, but we also have to be down to the relay station by a certain amount of time, and we're, you know, 45 minutes away, so it's kind of a a crunch time for us. So uh, if you're planning on bringing a box, today'd be a great day to do it between one and four. All right, numbers, chapters four and five. Um, this is where they pack up the stuff. We've been talking about how God starts off in the book of Genesis with creation, and we're all created in God's image, and everything was perfect. And it also teaches us in Genesis that we fell, because along with that perfection, he gave us free will. He gave us the opportunity to not choose him. We have creative abilities. We can create children. We can do all sorts of things um, that God's given us because we're made in his image. Um, And one of those things that we can create is evil. Um, we have the ability, and evil doesn't exist. God didn't create evil. It happened by people not following God. So if you ever wonder where evil came from, it's the opposite of obeying God. And all God had to do was say, you have the option of obeying me or not obeying me. And as soon as we chose the option to not obey, evil was created. Same with Satan. Um, the first opportunity was they had free reign as well, free, free will, and they chose it. So we see that in Genesis. Creation, we see the fall um, we see the flood. We see the beginning of a redemptive story start. And then in Exodus, just like our birth into this world was Genesis, Exodus is our uh, redemption out of the world. And we see that as Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt um, and begins to introduce them to their God, much like us when we get born again. We're brought out of the world, but we're introduced. And as we go through Leviticus, then we understood that there were some ways to worship God. He taught us how to worship. He taught us how to follow. He taught us what it meant to have a God to begin with. Not like the worldly gods, but a God that was a holy God and what that looked like. And now in Numbers, he begins to set things up for us. He begins to put things in order. I'm not a God of, of, uh, uh, of happenstance. I'm a God of purpose. 
I have a, a plan here, and I want you to be numbered. I first want to set up the army. I want you to know that you're in a, a battle. I want you to understand that there's going to be a spiritual battle for the ground that you're about to be given. They're not going to give it up easily. And we learn as born-again believers that although we're saved, Satan wasn't happy to let us go. And so we, we are in that battle right now. Many of us feel that. And maybe came here this morning beaten up by that battle a little bit. Need some uh, refreshment from the Lord because times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And then he says, I want to number you uh, in a different way. I want to number you not only for war, but I want to number you to serve. I want to number you to get ready to do. Because that's the natural inclination of a born-again believer is to serve a holy God. That's what we're made to do. That's what we're created to do. We're created to serve him. And that's what he's doing here. It's important to study numbers for this reason. Not only is God precise in his numbers, I want to know exactly how many people there are. I want to know how many there are exactly to be redeemed. I also want you to know you have an exact purpose. You have an exact mission. You have an exact ministry. Not only does God tell us what he does want us to do, by exclusion, he tells us what we're not supposed to be doing. I don't want you doing the other things that everybody else is doing. I want you to do what I've asked you to do. And I don't want you to worry about what they're doing. I want you to do what I've asked you to do, and I want you to do it as unto me. I want you to serve a holy God, because it's best for us. It's a, it's a, it's a, there's so much involved in understanding that there is a God. There's so much so much benefit from understanding there is a God. There's so much benefit from receiving his love and grace. There's so much benefit from serving this one who's the living God who's full of grace and mercy for us. There's so much benefit for us. It's not about him. He's a servant. Um, when he came in the likeness of Jesus, he wrapped himself in the loincloth and washed the feet, which is the lowest job on earth to do. Um, they would find the lowest servant to do that. And he chose it for, an, for a reason. I want you to understand this. And if God, the creator of the universe, my creator, is willing to do that for me and others and anybody, he wants to show me that service is essential to being godly. It's absolutely essential. You can't be godly without service because that's who he is. That's what he does. Not only is he love, we know that God is love, but he's also servant. He's a servant. And if I'm not serving, then I don't have that godliness. There's, there's a way, uh, there's something about that to learn, to have. And so He's numbering people for service. Now, in chapter 4, he begins to explain what the children of Koath were supposed to do once they were numbered, how they were supposed to wrap everything up. There was a reason and a purpose for everything. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi, by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. I want you to count everybody, not the way we did before, from age one month old and above. I want you to count differently. These are 30 to 50-year-olds, because those are the ones that can serve. Now, back then, 30 was pretty old. They get married at 15, 17 years old, right around there. 30 is being married for 15 years. Now you can start serving God in the temple or in the tabernacle at this point. Now you can start. And then at the age of 50, so for 20 years you serve, once that's over, because it's labor-intensive, because it's a burden, because it was a lot of hard work, I'm going to now have you at 50 pass it on to the next generation. I want you to begin to teach them and show them. You're not doing the heavy lifting so much. You're going to let them do the heavy lifting for a while. And so he shows us that, and it's okay. And I was a little encouraged by it now. I reached 48. 
two years, two years from retirement, according to chapter four. I'm not going to retire. Chuck didn't retire, so I'm not going to retire. He just died. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to die, and you'll have to drag me off here. Um, but I get to let go of the heavy lifting. You get to begin to pass it on, or you should have been doing that anyway the whole time, passing on to younger guys that are going to follow in the footsteps, not change it, not do things differently, not have their own spin, but do it exactly like God showed you, exactly like God showed Moses. It's not open to interpretation. And so um, Kohath is going to be counted in a different way. The 30 to 50-year-olds are going to be counted. These are the actual servants. And so this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. Now, they were responsible for packing up the actual furniture inside the tabernacle. They weren't in charge of the gates, the, the, uh, any, of the, any of the coverings or the walls or the sockets or the, any of that stuff, the actual stuff. And so there was a special thing that had to happen. These guys had to go into the tabernacle, pack everything up before anybody could do anything else because nobody else could even watch them do it. It was that holy of a moment. It was that important. And so he begins to describe this. When the camp prepares to journey, when the cloud would leave or the fire, uh, pillar of fire would leave, they would pack up and follow this. And so here's the beginning of that process. Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue. They shall insert its poles. He's color-coding. Now, there's, I'm sure there's some deep spiritual meaning behind blue. Blue is one of the, it's our, that's our first heaven. If you look up into the skies, our first heaven during the daytime is blue. The second heaven would be at nighttime, black. And the third heaven, which Paul was caught up to, remember we read that in the, in the New Testament, he was caught up into the third heaven. That's beyond that black, which nobody knows what that is. And so that's where Paul was caught up to, the third heaven. So perhaps this blue means the first heaven. As you look up, you think of God because this is his chair. This is the Ark of the Testimony. And so they would cover it. Badger's skin was for protection, and the blue was for color coding. And so, um, so they understood, hey, what's underneath that tarp? Nobody had to peek. I mean, you'd have to, I think you'd have to be pretty silly not to know now, is that, the, is that the altar of incense, or is that the table of showbread, or is that the Ark of the Covenant? Boy, we don't want to get this wrong. I'm sure they knew what they were carrying, but in case they didn't, hey, the blue one goes out first and goes in first. Um, verse 7. On the table of show... Oh, wait, I did skip something. Then they shall put on it the covering of badger skin and spread that over the cloth entirely of blue, and they shall insert its poles. Always had to be carried with the poles. No other way to do that. We'll discuss that in a minute. On the table of the show, of showbread, they shall spread a blue cloth um, and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, the pitchers for pouring, uh, and the showbread uh, shall be on it. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth. So this is red and cover the same with the covering of badger skins, and they shall insert the, its poles. Again, had to be carried with poles, and this one's color-coded red. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, uh, its wick trimmers, its trays, all its oil vessels uh, with which they service it. And then they shall put it uh, with all its utensils in a covering of badger skin and put it on a carrying beam, again, carried by a pole. Never put on carts, if you notice that. That's important. Never put it on a cart. Always hand carry it. Hand walk it on a pole. It's not the easiest way. 
It's not the easiest way, but it's God's way. It's the way he wanted it done, and so that's how you do it. Over the golden uh, altar, they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with the covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles, and they shall take all the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth, cover them with the covering of badger skins, and put them on a carrying beam. Also, they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread purple cloth over it. They shall put on it all its implements with which they minister there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, the utensils of the altar. And they shall spread on it a covering of badger skins and insert its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. But they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. None of these guys got to be a part of the packing, only these Levitical servants in Aaron's but the Kohaths got to carry it. They got to carry it. That was their job, but they couldn't be a partaker of the actual coverings and so on. These are things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Now, I don't know if there's some deep spiritual meaning. I might make a little bit up this morning. But since Aaron, the high priest, represents Jesus Christ, our high priest, every... Every and all of the work inside the tabernacle is done by him. My responsibility, like Kohath, maybe your responsibility, like Kohath, is to come along and carry it. That's all we do. Now, I'm making, I don't know if that's exactly what he's trying to get at here, but I do make an observation here. You don't touch the holy things. That's for him to touch, but you can carry the holy things. That's for you to do. I don't know. I do know this. I'm called to carry God's word. I don't get to change it and rewrite it. I can insert my opinion now and then, but I always qualify it and make sure you know that that's my opinion and it's not written here. And that's why we all follow along in their Bibles. It's very important to follow along to make sure J.D.'s not a heretic. You know? But my job is to carry this, and it's to carry it faithfully, and it's to carry it week in and week out. It's to carry it for the rest of my life. It's not to change it. I just carry the Word of God. That's it, because it's perfect. It's done just right. It's wrapped up nice and tidy. As we were talking about Genesis to Revelation, if you were following it along, it really couldn't be in any other order. Well, some random guys just threw a bunch of books together that they thought were good. Who knows if it's really the Word of God or not? Man, you haven't read it. Boy, you haven't studied it if you have that opinion. Because if you look at the way it's set up, it's set up in the beginning and it ends in the end. In the beginning with God. It's perfect. Genesis to Revelation. It's set up with your... You're made, you fell, you got saved, you learn how to worship God, and you walk with God the rest of your life, and it's a battle. I mean, it's just laid out perfectly for that. All we do is contain it. All we do is hold it. All we are is earthen vessels. It's what's inside that counts. And so like the Kohaths, that's what we do. We very carefully, with poles, carrying it on ourselves, not giving it over, not making it faster, not making it easier, but hand-delivering what God has entrusted to us to others so that they can worship. Now, Kohaths are supposed to be carrying this. If you turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see a situation where someone touches who isn't supposed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had been taken, had been captured. They got it back, but they tried to move it, not with poles, but on a wagon. They tried to put it in a wagon which is not prescribed by God, and they knew it, and they knew it. That's the important part here. 
So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we see the story in verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart. See, they thought they were doing honorable thing. It's a new cart. That's even better than poles. It's not when that's not what God asked them to do. It would have been a blessing to give that new station wagon to someone who needed it maybe. But to do it differently than what God prescribed was not okay. There's a, there's a, a sense of, and it, it doesn't, it's buried deep, but the intent of the heart was this is better. I know that's what he said, but this is so much more efficient. And it's not what God wanted. So they set it on a new cart um, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which, is on, which was on the hill of uh, Uzzah and Ahio, uh, uh, I think. Not Ohio, but Ahio. The sons of Abinadab drove the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, sistrums, and on cymbals. There's nothing wrong with any of that. The only problem is the cart. And when they came to uh, Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David got mad. Who do you think he got mad at? I think he got mad at God. Look at all this, and this is how we can see it sometimes. This is how we view it. I mean, we did all the pomp. Look at the way it's written. Even from the beginning, it's written. And then we did this, and all the people, 30,000. I mean, it's, it, there's a lot of bravado there. And we got all the instruments lined up, and we got a new cart. Not some old junky cart, but a new one. And the two strong guys on either side, part of David's mighty men of valor, were walking beside the cart to make sure, you know. I mean, it just looked like a great procession. But it wasn't God's prescription. It wasn't what he said to do. And when the oxen stumbled, he reached out his hand and not only touched it, but grabbed it and steadied it so it wouldn't fall off. Poor God. I've got to make sure it doesn't fall off the cart. Got to make sure it's steady. Got to make sure it's in my hands here. To, mm -mm. Not what we said. See if it was carried by the priest like it was supposed to with poles inserted. If one man steadies, stead stumbles, the other three can compensate it wasn't the way God wanted it to be done. And I, I just want to leave that there because God here sets in order in chapter 4 of Numbers, this is how it has to be done. And although it's been hundreds of years later when David finally has this moment in 2 Samuel, it didn't change how God wanted it done. It's not open to interpretation. And so David got mad. And he got angry, and he sat down and pouted a little bit, is basically what he did. And God corrects him, and you can read the rest of the story on your own. But i got to be careful when I don't understand why God didn't bless my excellent efforts. 
It was so much more efficient. It was so much better. It was so much grander. Look at the size. Look at the scope. And it was all for you, God. We told you right off the bat, this was all for you. Look, if it was all for me, do it like I asked. That's all I asked. Just do it like I said. That's what's pleasing to God. God doesn't care about our improvements. He cares about our obedience. I want you to trust me enough to know that I even know how to carry my own chair. I think I know what I'm doing here. And I trust him. And I trust him. So, make sure you do that. Nobody touches it lest they die. He warned them. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting back in uh, numbers there, which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Now, the, uh, the appointed duty of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the lighting and the sweet incense and the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, and the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and all of his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. Protect them. Aaron, I want you to protect the Kohathites. Don't let them get cut off. Don't let them do your job for you. Don't let them come in. I want you to keep them out. They don't even get to watch. They get to come in later. Now, we learn later on, and we're going to kind of sum up here. Uh, the next sections are actually the counting of the people, 30 and above. And the first section is the Gershonites, the Gershons. Um, well, actually, the second. The first one was the Kohathites. They're 8,600 in number. We learned that from last week. They're 30 to 50-year-olds are 2,750. The next section is the Gershonites. They were 7,500 strong in total, but 30 to 50 were 2,630. Now, the Miraris, I call them like Ferrari, were 6,200 in total, but 30 to 50-year-olds were 3,200. And he goes through that and counts all of that, and that is the remainder of chapter 4. That's what I want, he wanted you to do is count those. So there we have our numbers. Um, and for a total of all that we're going to take care um, of the tabernacle, we're 8,580. Okay, that's the end of four. So let's get into five real quick. Chapter five. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge, and every whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so the children of Israel did. Now this is ceremonial. They're not in sin. They just have an issue and they don't want it to spread through the camp. That's the practical purpose for this. And we've discussed this in Leviticus in great detail who, what, and why, and how long, and all that. He's just reminding them, make sure you put them outside the camp. We don't want it to spread. But it's not against them. It's for everybody else is the idea. Uh, we don't want it to spread. Now, all of our sicknesses stem from the fall of man, not from a person's sin necessarily. I, never get that confused. Never think that because someone's sick, if they had enough faith, if they hadn't sinned in this area, they wouldn't be sick. That's not true. That's not biblical. But we do know that all decay, all death, all sickness do stem from the eating of the apple or the eating of the fruit at the beginning. That's when death was brought into the world. We know that. So part of this is we want you outside. We want that out. We want you to get healed up, hopefully. But if not, we certainly don't want it to spread. And that's 
the reason behind this. We don't want it to spread. He's just taking care of them. Sometimes we think it's mean. Oh, that's just so mean. Those poor lepers, those poor people. Now, it's not against them. It's for you. It's for the healthy. And, and, and we get that confused sometimes. And um, we get that confused in our justice system sometimes. We get that confused in all sorts of ways. When we think we have more compassion and we mess things up because in that compassion we cause more harm than good. Well, I think I'm just going to give that kid a second chance. Okay, this is like the third time he's done this. Are you sure you want to let him go, judge? Oh, I just really got a good feeling about this. And I won't describe what sin it is, but let's say it was against somebody. Think of the worst one you could think of, maybe. Ah, we're going to let him go with some probation. think he'll be fine. And then he goes out and hurts somebody else again. You were gracious to him, but you hurt other people in the process. You have to be careful about that. You have to be careful about not seeing the whole picture like God does. God doesn't want these people to have to be alone. He doesn't want them outside, but they've got something that can spread to others. It's not against them. It's for the others. And so keep that in mind. When God calls me to obedience, yes, it's for me, partially. It's my best life ever in obedience to God, but it's also for everybody else around me. It's for their benefit that I obey God. If I'm a good godly husband and a good godly father, that's a benefit to my wife and to my kids, as well as to me. There's peace, you know, in obedience to God. But it isn't about me. It's more about them. And he wants us to be others-centered. Consider others more than you consider yourself. He tells us that over and over again. It's not against you. It's for them. Oh, you just don't let me have any fun. No, your fun hurts. Your fun causes your family to be in distress. It causes them to be concerned about you. and They don't enjoy their day because they're worried about where you're headed. And so God calls us to obedience. And so that's a little twist here, a little teaching on that verses 1 through 4. Moving on to verse 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full, plus one-fifth of it, or 20%, and give it to the one he has wronged. But if a man has no relative, or the person who was wronged has no one, you know, he's gone, and there's no relatives to pass on to the, the 120% to, whom the restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest. I think this is interesting. In addition to the ram of the, te- of the atonement, uh, and which, uh, with which excuse me, atonement is made for him, every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy things shall be his. Whatever any man gives, the priest shall be his. Now, he says that three times in the end. I don't want to lose sight of this as I go through the rest of it. It has to be yours. You can't go take somebody else. God says I owe 120%. Can I borrow buck 20? No, no, it's got to come from you. The reason being is this is um, it's a deterrent. Um, we forget that when it comes to justice. When it comes to justice, there's a deterrent. This is going to cost me 20% if I do this. I think I'm gaining, but if I get caught, it's 120%, you know, 20% above and beyond what I took. There's a deterrent there. The law motivates obedience by loss. I'll say that again. The law always motivates people to obedience by loss. 
I'm going to take something from you if you're not obedient. Salvation is completely different. Salvation motivates people to obedience from gain. Salvation motivates people to obedience from gain. I've been given salvation. Now I'm obeying God. There's a big difference. The law just threatens. At the bare minimum, he says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it's, it's your reasonable service to present your bodies as living sacrifice. That's reasonable. It's like saying, hey, way to go for not hitting your wife today. Here's 50 bucks. No, of course no one would do that. That's just reasonable. It's unreasonable to hit her. It's unreasonable to do anything like that. But it's reasonable service to present your bodies as living sacrifice. And so there's no, there's no reward for that. Here he's saying you have to make sure that when a criminal does something, make sure that they pay for it. It needs to come out of their pocket. There has to be that. There has to be a sense of loss for them to stay true and faithful. It has to be. And that's what the law does. That's what all of our laws for. Whenever you see this coming to you through your television screen or through the internet or however you get your news, there's a change taking place. There's a movement taking place where there's supposed to be pity and it's not their fault and they don't know if that's necessary and oh my goodness, isn't that above and beyond? No, there has to be loss and it has to be their loss, not somebody else's loss. It doesn't count. It has to be their loss for them to learn, for them to stay true, for them to understand that there are consequences for their actions. It doesn't do any good for me to continually bail out my kids or to bail out people. Sometimes a good night in jail, and my parents did that twice with me, is what I needed. I'm used to them bailing me out with my teachers. I was used to them bailing me out and all these things. And I got in trouble one time while in high school, and, I'm, and I called him, and, and he says, you know, I'll, I'll get you tomorrow morning. You're going to leave me in here? Mm-hmm. That was it. He just hung up. Okay. That night, laying there looking up on the other side of bars was, okay, mm, a lot of, because you don't sleep. There's not a whole lot of rest, not a whole lot of REM sleep going on in jail. You learn, and it benefited me. That little tough thing he had to do, and I'm sure as a parent, I can't imagine what it would have been like, and I hope I never will. Right, kids? <laughs> to ever have to leave them there. And the second time he did it, I learned. Second, I, apparently I didn't learn the first time, so that's, there was a second time, and I called him and said, I'm staying, I don't need to come get me. He says, okay, hung up again. I ain't been back since, so the second time was a charm, I guess. Um, there has to be loss. So be careful when they try to convince you that there just needs to be rehabilitation. True, I'm all for that, but there needs to be loss first. There needs to be something of theirs taken from them to remind them that this is costing you and to remember that the next time you think about doing it, it will cost you. It will cost you. So, um, verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses. Now, this is bizarre. I'm sorry. But this is one of those things in the Old Testament. I think I've got a handle on it. I'm going to do my best to give it to you, but I'm going to read it as is. I think there's some interesting things going on here behind the scenes. Because I know my God. I know that he's true. I know that he's faithful. I know that he's just. I know that he's really, really smart. He's really smart. And so I'm trying to figure this out as I'm reading this. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. So where is this going on right now? 
in his head. Because he just has this sneaking suspicion. Okay? Okay. I'm just I'm telling you what I'm reading. And if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall uh, bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah, a barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Hmm. Now this is only if the man gets a spirit of jealousy. There is no provision for the woman who has a spirit of jealousy that comes upon her. Just make note of that. Just telling you what I'm reading here. Because it's always true, right? God's word's true. What's going on here? And the priest shall bring her near... And set her before the Lord, the priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle, put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand uh, the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, So she's got her right hand raised, apparently. If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse, and an oath among your people... When the Lord makes your thigh rot, we don't know exactly what the translation is there, probably not literally thigh rotting, but something else, and your belly swell, that's probably straightforward, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot, and the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. I mean, this sounds medieval at this point. Okay, let me back up a little bit, knowing my God's perfect and smart. And I'm thinking, what is he trying to cover? Because you don't see this ever being done throughout the rest of Scripture. It's never done. There's never this time where it says, and then David brought his 50th wife forward before the Lord. You know, it's never done. There's never a conclusion. Imagine your household and you're living with a jealous, and now I'm throwing this out. I better qualify this. It ain't in Scripture, what I'm about to say. But suppose you're in this situation as a wife, and you got a crazy husband who constantly thinks you're cheating on him. And that's all you hear, day in and day out. They put away for this to get it out of the system. Okay, then let's just go find out. So you're going to drink some water and grain. And if your thigh rots, and if your stomach explodes, then you're guilty. But otherwise, go home and leave her alone. Because you never see this happening. You never see it come to a conclusion. It's almost an antidote for this guy's crazy mind. Now, I'm not saying it didn't. I'm not saying that a woman didn't have it happen to her. It's just not documented. This could have been a very interesting lie detector test of the Old Testament that God set in motion, and he very well could have honored it because there's dust from the temple and there's grain and there's things going on here, and God may have very well said, watch, just like the Urim and the Thummim. So let me make that clear too. Could very well be. We just don't ever see it done. We don't see a provision for the man to be brought before the Lord in case the woman thought. 
It's just for this guy. It's just for him. So, beside there being no provision for the woman, how does she get out from under this? And if this happens week after week, this is costing the guy. Hey, if you're going to have these doubts, fine, but it's going to cost you an ephah. One-tenth of an ephah every time you want to go through this. And you're going to have to bring it before the Lord. And we're all going to be present. It's going to be out in the open. I would imagine after the twelfth time, maybe the priest has given this guy the eye. Really, Bob? I mean, she's the greatest woman in town. And believe me, we would have heard about it. I'm just throwing that out there for you. How do you bring peace? How does God deal with our, maybe at times, vain imaginations? Just (laughs) thoughts that go through our head. I don't want you to have to worry about that anymore. Look, I provided this way for you to figure it out. Look, she didn't swell, thigh's not rotten. She's innocent. You're wrong, buddy. There's no way to prove it anyway. The law states that if she's caught in adultery or if the man's caught in adultery, then they could be stoned to death. Penalty is death for that. There's a way for that. But what do you do about thoughts? What do you do about innuendo? What do you do about accusations? What do you, what do, you do with all that? So God devises this. Now, I don't know. I don't know. I've given you both my opinion. I don't see a provision for the woman where we see a provision for the woman in every other circumstance, okay, except this one. I don't see how grain and water is going to make her belly bloat automatically. It's not like throw her in the water. If she floats, she's a witch, you know, kind of thing. It's not that weird. It's something that, man, something really has to be wrong for this to work. I mean, God really has to supernaturally come in and rot her thigh and make her stomach go because normally this could all be consumed without any problem. That's my observation. I'll leave it at that. Because when you read, as a pastor, when you, I, I don't skip these passages. We're going to study them. But I know my God from reading the rest of it, and I know how he thinks sometimes, but I'm not, I'm not presuming. It could very well be a lie detector test that was very effective and it did work back then and we just don't have any instances of it being used. Um, no, nothing recorded, very well could have been. But I do see there's method to his madness in this. I want your marriage to go on. And so if I can take a little liberty here and I'm going to, you know what, guys? I think a better example of what you do with a wife that may be going astray, if not for sure going astray, is Hosea. Hosea. Because that's our example of how God treats us. God has a bride, has the bride of Israel, and she is constantly, and not just maybe going astray, is absolutely going astray. And he continually lets her, for one thing. He doesn't corral her. He doesn't put her in a locked room. He's not abusive. She is absolutely free to go if she wants to. And she does. And he continually goes and buys her off of the auction block, brings her back into his bosom, brings her back into his love and compassion and provision, constantly taking care of her. If you have problems in this area, if maybe you're a jealous person, if you're a person who's constantly having thoughts and wondering if he's really where he's supposed to be or she's really where she's supposed to be, pray and let God deal with that. And use him as an example. He set Hosea up as an example, the prophet, to go out and to allow this to take place. And I want you to marry this woman who's a prostitute. And I want you to know what it's like to be married to Israel. And I want you to continually bring her back to you and have children by her and name them specific names. But I want it to be an example to you of my faithfulness. It's not about their unfaithfulness. It's about your faithfulness. 
That's what these things are for. So I don't know. I know I took some liberties with this section, so I'm going to finish it up here, but I don't know exactly what's going on here. It's one of the two. Probably is a lie detector test, but I think our best bet is to not go buy some IFA and take your wife to me and have her drink some water, and we'll see what happens. I think it's best to forgive her, give her freedom, and let the loving kindness of Christ lead her or him to repentance. It's important. Okay. The woman shall say amen, so be it. And maybe snap her fingers in the process. I don't know. Amen. (laughs) I didn't do nothing wrong. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrap them off into scrape them, excuse me, scrap. Scrape them off into bitter water, and she shall make and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings the curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Uh, then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. Uh, and the priest shall take a handful of the offering and its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and many and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of, the, of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. So um, it says what it says. He means what he says. It probably was a way to tell um, But what do we do with that in the New Testament since the law has passed away? We don't do this anymore. We follow Christ's example. We forgive like we've been forgiven. And we don't ever forget how much we've been forgiven because we all married sinners. Every one of us has married a sinner. They're not going to be perfect. And our responsibility is to forgive. Our responsibility is to forgive like Christ forgave us, like we would want Christ to forgive us. Okay? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you keep it in our hearts. Um, we thank you that you've documented all this stuff down. And Lord, I don't know whether I got chapter 5 right or not. I I don't have anything to go off of as far as your word goes. So um, God, you say what you say and you mean what you say. And um, I'm so thankful, Lord, that this has passed away. I'm so thankful that we're under the new covenant now of your blood. um, And that as Christians, we walk a different kind of way, not according to the law, which compels us to obedience through loss, but through salvation through our Son, or your Son, Jesus Christ, Lord. Um, We're very thankful for what you've done. Um, We want to be obedient because we're saved, because we have eternity, because we're going to heaven. Um, And now it's reasonable for us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to you, to follow your example as a servant, to be a forgiver um, to all those around us, God, like you are to us. Um, what, What a great opportunity that is. What a freeing life that is, to not live under bitterness, to not live under guilt either. Um, but under forgiveness and mercy and grace. We love that. We love that about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.